when you are delivering a hard message, that's never going to be easy, even if your foundational skills are good. And so in that case, you really need to concentrate on how to eliminate ambiguity. That's the, the sort of first and foremost thing. When material is difficult, there's a tendency to want to somehow create euphemisms or like not really say it. But that leads to more confusion, that leads to ill feelings, that leads to people saying, oh, they're hiding things from me. So you need to be as fast as possible and as accurate as possible. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In the past couple of episodes, you got a chance to know me a little better. You heard about my story and what I think about authenticity, setting goals for success, and leadership. Today, I'm thrilled to get back to the interviewer side of the mic and welcome a fabulous guest, Dory Clark. Dory is a master communicator and an expert on experts. She has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldman Leading Global Coaches Awards. She's a consultant, a keynote speaker, and she teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. She's also a best-selling author for the Wall Street Journal. Her latest book is called The Long Game, but she also published Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, a book that was nominated the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. She has tremendous expertise, as you can tell, in two areas. The areas of communication, which is a critical component of being a leader and in being an effective leader, and also the area of developing your expertise and also become a world recognized expert in whatever is your subject matter of expertise. And so these are the topics that we cover in our conversation today, along with a whole other host of subjects. Now, I promised that I would give out a copy of Deborah Spar's book to my favorite review posted in October, and the winner is Brainator One. So Brainator One, please email me at dino at al4ep.com with your contact information, and I will send you a copy of Deborah Spar's book. For November, I'm giving out not one, but two books. I'm gonna give out a copy of The Long Game by Dory Clark, and then you may remember that a couple of months ago, we had Alisa Kohn as a guest and her book from startup to grown up just came out in October. And so I'm going to give out a copy of her book too. So head out to Apple podcast, leave a review at the end of November. I will pick up my two favorite reviews and send to one person, the copy of Dory Clark's book and to the other person, the copy of Alisa Kohn's book. And now enjoy our interview with Dory Clark. Dory, thank you so much for agreeing to take part in the podcast. And why don't we start? Why don't you give your background and your story to our listeners? And let's start from there. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Dino. It's great to be here talking with you. Well, I grew up in North Carolina and I 
booked it out of there <laughs> as quickly as I as I could. And I actually moved very close to you. Uh, I lived in Somerville, Massachusetts for 17 years. I went there to attend Harvard Divinity School, where I got my master's of theological studies. And after that, I thought I was going to have a career in academia, but that did not pan out. I did not get into any of the doctoral programs that I applied to. So I had to come up with a new plan. So I tried a lot of different things. I worked in newspapers, I worked in politics, and actually something that is quite satisfying for me now is that I have nonetheless managed to find a career in academia as part of what I do. I now teach part-time for the Duke University Fuqua School of Business and also Columbia Business School. So I made my way in uh, despite having been turned down initially. And these days I live in, in New York City and it's awesome to be here talking to you and your guests. What I found fascinating uh, when I ran to you and, and I actually met you because I took a class on how to build a business as a coach that you and Elisa Cohn taught. And Elisa has been a guest of mine earlier in the podcast. But you had a path to becoming an executive coach that it's a little different than the normal paths. So how did you end up there and how did you find your passion in that? Yeah. So I know you come from a background in the advertising world. So you know about marketing. I started my business as a marketing strategy consultant. And so I really thought of myself as a consultant rather than a coach. I was advising organizations about everything from their social media strategy to PR to overall marketing. And I, I really didn't think about applying that to individuals. But over time, I began writing more articles. And I knew that that was necessary in order to be able to grow my brand and kind of get heard of by people that I wanted to have hire me. And most of the articles were aimed at individuals. And so I began to get inquiries from people about whether I did coaching. And at first, I would say no, that, that that was not what I did. But over time, I got enough requests that I realized, oh, this is actually kind of dumb, like you should listen to the market if people if people are interested in that. And so I began doing coaching. And with the caveat that as you're exactly right, I, I don't have a traditional coaching background. So the coaching that I do is not sort of standard leadership coaching. It's kind of niche, and it is coaching specifically around communications, which is my background. So for corporate executives, that often takes the form of how to be strategic about their messaging, their positioning, how to communicate more effectively with internal and external stakeholders. And for entrepreneurs, uh, with, you know, in, in which I include solopreneurs like coaches or consultants or authors, it's really about how to deconstruct the process of becoming a thought leader in your field. So this is actually, I think, a really important part. Every time you ask leaders about what are the great traits of a leader, uh, many people say communications. But as people get trained to become leaders and as people think about their leadership experience, there's very little normally that is dedicated to actually honing communication as a skills. So given that that's what you teach people, what are some of the three or four most important things that people need to think about as they develop their communication styles and how to build effective communication? If we're looking at folks who are corporate leaders, when it comes to effective communication, there's a few things. We need to separate out and look at both the delivery and 
the actual content because things can go awry in both places. From a delivery perspective, it's often about you know, really understanding and analyzing. Sometimes this is super painful. I call it watching game tape, but, you know, understanding how you're coming across to other people. And so we will actually work on stage presence and techniques, whether that is delivered virtually or in person, because what we don't want is for ticks in our communication style to distract people from the central message that we're trying to deliver. And then, of course, there's the content piece, which is really understanding how the information is going to be absorbed by the listener and making sure that it's presented in a logical enough framework so that it's answering their questions before they even think to ask them so that essentially the listener can relax into the presentation, not be second guessing it, not be wondering, oh my gosh, where is this going? Not be getting bored or lost, but actually following the flow that you are setting up. And if you can do those two things, then it enables you to be dramatically more effective at getting your point across and hopefully being persuasive as you do it. Right. And, and getting your basically getting decisions to be made and implemented because, you know, 50% of the decision is the processing and thinking, but then getting a decision implemented is actually what gets the results in the field. What are some examples without sharing confidential information? Well, what are some examples of situations where you had to work with leaders who had to deliver a very difficult message or, you know, get the organization to to make a decision that on the surface could have been controversial. And what is some of the advice that you would give to somebody who is in that situation? Yeah, this this can be a real challenge. I have worked with leaders, even if you're already great at communications, when you are delivering a hard message that's never going to be easy, even if your foundational skills are good. And so in that case, you really need to concentrate on how to eliminate ambiguity. That's the, the sort of first and, and foremost thing. When material is difficult, there's a tendency to want to somehow create euphemisms or like not really say it. But that leads to more confusion, that leads to ill feelings, that leads to people saying, oh, they're hiding things from me. So you need to be as fast as possible and as accurate as possible. Because even if it's painful, you definitely want to be in the situation where you are ripping the bandaid off, rather than slowly tugging it and creating more havoc along the way. I also tend to work with corporate leaders who in their, commu their natural communication style, they might want to either sort of turn it up or tone it down. And what I mean by that is that you can run into challenges if you are either perceived as being too aggressive to the point where sometimes you might scare people or come across as angry, or conversely, where you are so soft at it that you your point is not getting across and people aren't really listening or aren't really taking you seriously because they feel like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't have an opinion or oh, well, she's making a suggestion. She's not really saying what we should do. That's an important point. I think oftentimes the process of developing leadership is a process of bouncing between the extremes until you find that right balance or there's assumptions about what would work as a leader. And then, you know, maybe what you need is a little more of the opposite. As you think about your own personal career, I know you made a move at some point from the world of nonprofit to the world of more like the corporate world. What were some of the differences that you observed in terms of like getting 
people to act between the two worlds and some of the challenges that people may face in the two worlds. I actually think, Dino, that that one of the biggest changes and challenges for me in between shifting from working in nonprofits to starting my own business was actually the the mental shift around money and pricing because working in this nonprofit context i mean i was this is not a big nonprofit this is like a scrappy super super grassroots nonprofit to the point where our annual budget was $150,000 we had 3 employees so you can imagine we were not living on a lot of money and having to actually get to a point where I was able to create services, price services, sell services that would have been things that never in a million years I would have bought or thought about buying when I was running this organization. It's a little bit of a cognitive stretch and you, and you actually have to almost forcibly rewire your brain so that you can deal with the new denomination. Because one thing you learned very quickly as an entrepreneur is that if you overprice yourself dramatically, then people won't hire you. But even worse, if you underprice yourself, people will not take you seriously. And you really want to make sure that doesn't happen. That's a very interesting point, because I think a lot of people that are starting their own business, no matter what the sector, they're so excited to get like that first or second customer that they don't think about the topic of pricing and how that can affect their business in the long run. So if you, you know, talking to somebody who is thinking about starting their own business, what would be some of the steps that they should take to make sure that they're pricing themselves within the correct band? One often, I think, overlooked element that I, I think is really important is trying as best you can to develop a community of peer colleagues. Sometimes I hear from people sometimes reasonably successful people, they say, oh, I don't want to make friends with other coaches or consultants. You know, why would I do that? That's a waste of time. They're my competitors. All I want to do is make connections with potential clients. And while on one hand, I can see the logic of what they're saying, I actually feel like it's, it's often short-sighted because first of all, other coaches or consultants are not actually your competitors. It's so extraordinarily rare that you're going up head to head against somebody. More often, your competitor is just the client not doing anything <laughs> or using an in-house resource, let's say. But even if someone were your competitor, as an individual, you are so different. If you're doing your job right, if another coach is right for that person rather than you, then it's better that they went with the other person because you, you want the clients for whom there's almost no other choice. So... The issue that I think is, is crucial for us to understand is that the client has a ton more pricing information than we do. The client, they could be buying a ton of coaching, but even if they're not, odds are for a particular engagement, they'll, they'll get you know three proposals or what have you. They'll be able to bring that in and just sort of see how people position themselves. You, if you do not have peer connections, have no idea. You're flying blind. And oftentimes, because you're just, you know, because if you're getting started, you're a little nervous about not wanting to lose the business, you will underprice yourself quite badly and quite systematically. And so having peer colleagues to give you bands so you understand what's normal, that is extremely valuable. That's great. Yes. And, th and then I think that applies to any industries, basically the best way to get your market research and make sure you're within the right band. 
Yeah. How did you do it when you first got started, Dino? I had peers. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And I asked, and I'm like, oh, if the price in the market is is this, and I think it's really important, as you said, and I, and I think that applies to any profession. It applies to advertising. And you know, I remember when actually, maybe I was lucky I got training when I started out. In, I went from a very large advertising agency to a boutique, smaller agency. And I realized that in certain areas, we were pricing our services significantly less than a bigger agency. And I think in some cases, you know, as a boutique agency, it's okay to be priced less. But the first thing that I did in this new place, I, I pushed really hard to close the gap. And I started putting in market uh, two or three proposals that my peers thought I was crazy. And when we want a couple and, and, and they're like, oh, <laughs> because I think it does create credibility, as you say. Yes. It's important to say like you're buying the same level of quality of service. When I went solo initially as a marketing consultant and then as a coach, I always made sure that I told to other people who were in the field doing the work. And, you know, and I think like what you're talking about, the network effect, it's really important because the reality is that nobody, there's enough work. If you know how to do the work in most of these fields and you're a solopreneur or you know, even like a small firm, there's enough work out there for you to be at capacity. Yes, for sure. I want to talk about something, and since we're within the topic of clients, I want to talk about the other side, which is in a service business, a lot of the times successful relationships between client and vendor come when the vendor also takes the time to think about what is the right client for them. Did you go through that process and what were some of the key steps for you to identify what an ideal client would be for you. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is an important exercise to, to understand because, of course, we, we all know, you know, if you're marketing to everyone, you're marketing to no one. So what does it look like? Also, from a sheer perspective of referability, people need to be grounded somehow so they know who to send you to. Now, all that being said, I was terrible at doing this. <laughs> it was very hard for me because I was interested in a lot of things it felt weird and kind of artificial for me to specialize. And I would get a lot of pressure from people to specialize. And I struggled with it a lot. And so my answer actually is that I never really made a conscious choice to specialize. It was me sort of mucking around, getting the work that I could get, and then understanding where I was disproportionately popular. And actually just listening to the market signals and then moving more toward that so I think one alternative, if it's hard for you to make the choice about where to specialize, at a minimum, the thing that you can do is to see where there is traction and then respond to that. Yeah. So I want to actually go a little deeper into that and sort of connect to the overall theme of the podcast, which is the idea of authenticity. I think one of the things that impressed me about you and, and the reason why I asked you over here is that. I see somebody who on one hand has done the work to find the right niche of the market, but I think that you have also a very clear sense of what is important to you and what you enjoy doing. And so I'm curious, what were some of like the key moments in your journey where you sort of develop your authentic self, who your true person is and how that person shows up in your work? Yeah, well, thank you, Dino. I, I appreciate it. I would say something that actually was, was very interesting for me in the spirit of 
understanding your clients and how that factors into authenticity. Back now, over a decade ago, probably 2009, I knew that a good thing to do was, you know, okay, we get testimonials. So I hired a guy who was like this young guy who was like a film student to drive around to different clients in my city that I was living in at the time in, in Boston and interview them on tape uh, and provide testimonials about what it was like to work with me. And I did not script them in any way. Uh, what I did was I created a list of questions and I had this filmmaker guy uh, just, you know, set up the camera. He would ask the question and then we'd capture the responses on tape and edit it down into a testimonial video. So, you know, so far so good. But something that was really interesting for me was actually to see what they did say as a result of these questions. And one of the things that came through above and beyond the usual things that I might have expected about, oh, you know, she does good work and blah, 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 was that a lot of the clients were actually talking about the fact that they liked that they thought I was funny. And I thought that was interesting because I just sort of never in a million years would have put that on the list of like, oh, this is what clients like. This is what they're after. Because that's not, you know, like a business ROI. But it made a lot of sense to me afterwards that, you know, oh, okay, there's, there's, you know, there's lots of people who presumably could get ROI, but if they're not fun to work with, then people don't really want to do it. So understanding that, okay, the more fun I am to work with, the better I will do is a good inducement to just sort of being more loose, being flexible, being yourself. And so it was a, it was a good, helpful reminder for me. That's good. And as you, and you, you think about the thing that are fun for you, what are your magic secret things that you love doing? One thing that, that is really gratifying for me is in the course of building my business, I really had to struggle to figure out this process and you know, to crack the code of how to get your ideas heard in a very noisy and crowded environment. And I needed to figure it out for myself. But it has become a very joyful thing for me through my recognized expert course, through the books that I write, through my coaching, to be able to help guide or assist other people in that process. Because I know how frustrating it can be. I know how lonely it can feel. And if you do have some kind of guidance about the process, things can just go a lot faster, which, which is what we want. You know, I, I want to live in a world where the best ideas are the ones that are heard and Hopefully, I, I am helping to facilitate that. I want to switch for a second. You have a new book coming out that's called The Long Game. And full disclosure, as I mentioned at the beginning, I have it, but it came out so recently, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But there's a chapter for me that I saw the title and it really resonates with one of the areas that I tried to cover. And it's a chapter about setting goals. And I think the first line in the chapter says something along the lines that in the Western world, we're trained to measure things with money. How do you think about goals and how do you help your clients think about their goals? It's a really important question, right? Because ultimately, unless we are clear on what the outcome is that we're seeking, it's really hard to achieve any kind of success. You know, how would you know that you reached it if you're not setting clear metrics? So when it comes to goals and how to think about goals, you're exactly right. In the long game, I mentioned that, you know, one default, which is basically how we end up with so many unhappy lawyers is like, oh, well, if you don't know what to do, just make money, just do that. So, you know, okay, they go to business school, they go to law school, 
and they kind of march forward. And it might, you know, for some people, it's the right thing. And that's great. For a lot of people, it's not really it's just like, oh, okay, you know, I'll do this. But the other piece that affects a lot of us is there's a lot of societal pressure around optimizing for your passion that you know that's no not money you do your passion that's what it means to be a self actualized human being and again that is fine no judgment people can optimize for whatever they want i think that's great if you have a passion go for it but there is a significant share of people that either don't necessarily have a passion per se or they just don't know what it is maybe they've been busy they haven't had a chance to really lean into something other than work or you know, maybe they're starting out in their career, they don't have any idea, they're trying to figure it out. And so I think that there's a lot of what I call passion shaming. Because if you don't have a passion, a lot of people are like, Oh, God, how terrible, how tragic for you. And there's this feeling that you can't do anything until you know what your passion is. And I think that sends exactly the wrong message. Because we don't learn about our passions, we don't learn about ourselves by sitting and doing nothing and just, you know, banging our head against a wall, we learn by doing. And so I think it's it's really important to lower the bar and to ensure that people feel comfortable trying things, taking chances, and getting data that enables them to make smarter choices. I love what you're saying there, because I think some of the underlying theme of my podcast is the for everyday people part, which is going away from the exceptionalism that we're trained to, like, you know, you need to be a disruptor, you need to be in the top 1%, but like the majority of us sit in the middle of the bell curve. And how do we get to optimize our life, even if we're not going to be these exceptional people? So if you're somebody that is starting out and maybe does not have a clear view of what their passion is, or also doesn't want to optimize solely for money, what are some of the steps that you could take? What I actually suggest, my sort of countervailing force that I am trying to get going in our society now is what I call optimize for interesting. Because ultimately, there is nothing better, Dino, than a low bar. <laughs> I, I love it when people, when people feel free to experiment because it is, it, you know, it's low stakes. And so what is your passion is a very high stakes question. It's a very fraught question. What are you interested in? What do you find interesting is a relatively low stakes question. And almost everybody has an answer to that. We, we know what we like. We know what's interesting or what's not interesting to us. And so I think we should focus on that and just continue trying to move forward in that direction. And that I assume includes at times figuring out that something that was interesting was just interesting, but maybe not necessarily something that you want to spend a lot of time with. Yeah, absolutely. If we hold things lightly, it's not like the end of the world. It's like, okay, well, we had a date. Uh, you know, they're not my soulmate. Okay, next. You know, not a big deal. But as long as something is interesting, then we can keep moving toward it and learning about it. That's great. Do you have uh, some interesting stories of maybe clients, once again, always without revealing that, explore something unusual and found out that it was either great or not so great? Well, there, there's a lot of things that I think could be interesting in different levels. It doesn't necessarily have to be with an end goal of like, oh, and then I switched careers, although it could be. But I'll give you one example of something that I think is pretty cool when it comes to optimizing for interesting, which is uh, there's actually a guy in Boston, a local, a local CEO named Zach Breaker. And I profile Zach in the long game. 
he decided during COVID, you know, like everybody else, he's shut up, you know, his normal activities are stripped away from him. Life is not so fun. And he decides he wants to do something interesting. He wants to do something to reconnect with who he wants to be as a person. And so he actually hired a literature coach, which I love. He hunted somebody down. You know, it's not like people think, oh, yeah, I mean, well, who doesn't have a literature coach? He thought about this, but he realized like, look, there's a lot of people that do like tutoring or whatever. I'm sure somebody's like qualified. So he ended up hiring a person in Mexico who is a doctoral student in literature. And every Friday night, they would they would essentially have a kind of private book club where they would read a story together and then they would discuss it. And Zach, for him, it was it was a forcing function that enabled him to do what he what he loved and what he said he loved, which was reading interesting stories by interesting authors. I'm laughing. Zach is a good friend of mine. <laughs> well, there we go. You should really read this book, Dino. <laughs> <laughs> it is on my to read list. Um, as I said, I just got here. You you know you published it too recently. <laughs> Yes, I, apparently I'm writing about all your all your homies. I know, like I now found there's already two people in this book, so I need to figure out a way to get into your next book at this stage. <laughs> that, yes, that's the magic question, exactly. That is fascinating. I want to change gear for a second because obviously we've talked at the beginning about your expertise in helping people communicate better, but then you have a very special niche within that communication that is actually getting people who want to be intellectual leaders in their field and recognize experts, like going through the process of creating content and establishing themselves. So want to steal a little bit of free advice for our audience here. The people who are listening here who are thinking about maybe expanding from just being great leader to also being a fully recognized leader who publish and write, other than hiring you, what would be like the first steps that you suggest that somebody who's interested in that should take? One element, Dino, that I think is sort of a useful frame is during the years that I've spent studying the question of how to become a recognized expert in your business or your, your industry or your company, there are three key components that we need to be thinking about. And they are content creation, social proof, and network. And it's really important to make sure we're actually working on all three of these things because they work together in a holistic fashion. So content creation is basically, how do you make sure that other people are aware of what your ideas are? Because it's, it's really hard to become recognized for your expertise if people have no idea what you think about things. So that could be something within a company as small as just making more of an effort to speak up during meetings. It could be something as large as starting to blog for an industry publication. Then there's social proof, which is basically how are you telegraphing your credibility to other people in a way that is intelligible for them? And that can be things like becoming the chair or you know a board member of a regional professional group. It could be things like getting quoted in a publication and then that's in your bio oh you know dino has been quoted in places like a b and c it could be things like guest, guest lecturing at a university you know all of these things confer a kind of credibility that shows people that you know what you're talking about and then finally uh is your network which is important not only to ensure that you are exposed to new ideas that you know helps you think better but also that you have people out there 
who can amplify your best ideas. Once you have understood this framework, is there a sequence in this three steps, three areas? Is something that needs to happen at the same time? Are they self-sustaining with each other? I mean, I guess at some point when you got going, they all feed into each other, right? They do all feed into each other. I will make a specific suggestion for people who are starting out, but I'll also mention for people who are interested in this question, I do have a free resource, which is a scored self-assessment that focuses on where you are in the recognized expert journey. So if anyone wants to get it, you can pick it up for free at doryclark.com slash toolkit. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes to answer the questions, and it actually gives you a numerical score so you can figure out where you're strongest and where you're weakest. It provides, based on that, personalized suggestions about where to focus for the greatest impact. So it is a little different depending on where you are in the process, but I will say that one handy rule of thumb is that if you are either just starting out in a particular field or industry, or if for some reason this is an area that you have not emphasized, I would recommend that a useful starting point is social proof to focus on, you know, your credibility. And the reason for that is that unlike content, which it's important to keep doing, and unlike your network, which, you know, you got to keep connecting with people, social proof is actually something that once you have it, you have it. If you guest lectured at a university in 1997, you can still say you have guest lectured at that university because it's true. So taking the time up front to invest in a strategy to build social proof is something that can pay off for the rest of your career. Thank you so much. I think this is something that people who are listening here can take, and it's a really important, really helpful. And I think it's an underestimated and appreciated aspect of being a well-rounded leader, the idea of like, you know, being an expert in the field. I want to switch it to the personal. What are your hobbies or interests outside of your work? And is there one particularly that maybe has also helped you with your work? Well, one hobby that I actually write about quite a bit in the long game is musical theater writing. Because in the spirit of goal setting, I created a 10-year goal for myself back in 2016. And that 10-year goal was that I wanted to write a show that would appear on Broadway in 10 years. So during the 2026 season. So I was starting from a place where I had no idea how to write musical theater. This was really a cold start here. And in the past five years, because I have been devoting kind of 20% time, sort of experimental time toward learning how to do it, the great thing about it is it adds up over time. And so I have now written a complete musical. I've been accepted into and graduated from a pretty prestigious musical theater training program and have really been assiduously pursuing that. So, you know, I have not made it to Broadway yet, but it is not at all impossible given the trajectory and the work that I've been doing for the past five years. Are you writing music or lyrics or both? I do the uh, the book and the lyrics. The book and the lyrics. Do you have uh, any preferred musical partner composers that you work with or did you find them through the school? Or I actually have primarily been writing with my good friend, Marie and Contrera, who also makes a appearance in the long game. <laughs> so uh, so that is, that is the, the real secret. If you get to be friends with me, sooner or later, you'll end up in a book. <laughs> That's great. The second personal question that I like to ask my guest is every era has business catchphrases and jargon that at some point are so overused. 
they become hollow or they annoy you. Which are the expressions that drive you crazy? <laughs> well, you know, I try not to get too worked up about anything, but I will say, I remember for a long time, I was confused about what KPIs meant. Like, I'm just like, why? Why? Like, you could just say your met, you know, your metrics, like KPI just seems like a kind of random thing to have been coined as an acronym. Oh, that's a, that's a good acronym. That's a funny, I, I've never heard anybody complain about the KPI acronym, but I, I love your angle. Yeah. Performance metrics. That's so much more intuitive. And then final question. I like to ask my guests to share with us either something that it's a food for the body, so like a recipe or a drink that they love, or something that it's a food for the soul, which can be any piece of creation, you know, music, books, movies, paintings. Just pick one of the two and something that's really important to you or like that inspires you or you go to when you're sad. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it, Dino. Thank you. Well, I'm going to, speaking of things that I'm imbibing literally right this minute, I am a very big fan of soda stream and sparkling water, and I try to consume it all the time because I used to not ever drink enough water because, you know, frankly, I don't like it that much. It's like, eh, it's boring. And, uh, and so when I was a kid, I used to drink way, way, way too much Coca-Cola, uh, which is, you know, not good to drink way too much of. But what I re realized I loved about Coke was the bubbles, you know, I love the fizz of it. And so the idea that you can carbonate water to be like Coca-Cola is like the greatest thing ever. I had to fight for my love of SodaStream. There were serious supply chain issues during COVID. And so, I mean, I would, it was ridiculous. I'd have my assistant like calling for like hours to different places to be like, do you have SodaStream containers? We would hunt it down because it is that valuable to me. That's fabulous. I have had the same issues with the soda stream supply in COVID and was very relieved when we all got it back. Dory, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation and a lot of valuable insights, I think, for people who want to figure out how to better communicate and, and be experts in their field. Thank you so much, Dino. I, I appreciate it. It's great to get to know you and, uh, you know, put you in my next book. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who you think may like it and tell them about it. Actually, if you really enjoyed it, find a bunch of friends and tell them about it and maybe even post about it on social media. And make sure you're subscribed to the podcast in your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any of the new episodes. And if you haven't listened to any of the older episodes, go back and check them out. You may find something else that you like. If you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts or GoodPod, please leave a rating and a review that really helps the show. And remember that at the end of November, I will be giving out a copy of Dory Clark's book to one of my favorite review and a copy of Aliza Kuhn's book from Startup to Grown Up to another favorite review. So if you want to look at the books, just go and write a review. If you're a music fan, Stick around because at the end of the show, I uh, will play one of Susan Catania's songs. Now, if you want to find Dory, the best way to find her is doryclark.com, her website, spelled D-O-R-I-E Clark. She's also on all major social platforms as at Dory Clark. And I would also suggest if you're on LinkedIn, she has a fabulous newsletter that you can find under her profile and subscribe to. Very full of insights. So take a look at that. If you want to find me or are interested in working with me, you can reach me by email at dino at al4ep.com. 
and al4ep.com is also the website for the podcast i am on major social platforms like twitter and instagram as at al4edp and you can find me on facebook at authentic leadership for everyday people that's the name of the podcast and as of last week if you are on your phone you can also listen to the podcast directly on the facebook podcasting platform this episode was produced by me dino cattaneo with additional edits by pro podcast solutions it was recorded remotely using squadcast.fm the theme music was composed produced and arranged by nicolas cattaneo who also played keyboards and drums with tony savarino on guitar and jesse williams on bass as promised here is the song by susan cattaneo is a brand new single she released it on october 29th and it's a song that's called black and white enjoy Christmas gift Way back when Before all the drama Back of the picture says 66 The good old days Of 1966 Look here sister It's her birthday She's blowing those Five candles out And here's brother Shooting his cap gun They were young ones Now they're tired out. We were young once, now we're all tired out. We're all better in black and white. Smiling for the camera, living in our best light. In the still of the moment, it was a simple world, a simple life. That summer day under the maple tree And look here's grandma dancing with grandpa Fifty years gone, now she looks like me All these pictures, all this history All these people, all our past Boxes full of monochrome memories Sometimes wish we could all go back Oh, I wish we could all go back Simple